I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Or you can become a supporter of this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with vocal distance of Twitter fame. Thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I am really looking forward to talking with you. I've been following you for some time. Um, I think through Benjamin Boyce initially, he did an interview with you a while back that was interesting. And, of course, you have some uh, fairly famous Twitter threads at this point. But, I mean, despite the fact that I've been following you for some time, I actually really don't know very much about you. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about who you are. Honestly, I'm just a guy. I'm nobody special in my own view. I don't consider myself to be particularly excellent or awesome, wonderful or fantastic. I'm just a person that attempts to tell the truth as often as he can. Yeah. That's it. That's my story. I'm just, okay. I am trying to tell the truth. So I, I came to where I am by a very, very strange, interesting roundabout way. So um, I was not hired for this. When I started out, I had and continue to have, well, I had zero institutional support. I was just a guy with a, with a phone typing out ideas on Twitter. That was it. I was not working at a university. I was not working at an educational facility of any kind. I was just at home in COVID thinking and writing. And then it took off. And so now here I am. That's, that's, that's it. It's, I can give you a longer story if you'd like, but that's the, the gist of it. Are you, are you at liberty to say like what you do in your um, off social media life? You don't have to. I'm just curious. Uh, privacy is a superpower. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So no. Okay. That's I think I'll cool. keep that entirely to myself. <laughs> yeah, it just it just um in the in the current environment we're in, I don't need my kid or uh my any of the people that I, I am I'm involved with out outside of this, um having someone show up and say, Well, hey, you know, I don't like the so and so or whatever it is. Um I can say this, I work for the Center for Renewing America. Okay. I can say that. That I can say. That's public knowledge. So I work for the Center of Renewing America or the Center for Renewing America, and I'm a visiting fellow there. That's one of the things that I do outside of Twitter. I don't actually know what that is. I'm not, you don't, again, you don't need to talk about this if you don't want to. I'm just asking questions, but you can say no. 
I have I have many things going at once. So if I'm on my phone a little bit, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, so the Center for Renewing America is just um, a group started by Russ Vogt um, that works as something like the the Heritage Institute or or the Manhattan Institute, um, something like a think tank. So okay. that's that's where I work. I started there maybe four months ago. So and you're I, Canadian, I, though. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. You're, yeah. I, started, I started my account in 2020, in mid-2020, and I didn't start actually working at the think tank until 2021, and it was, I believe, late 2021. So later-ish mm-hmm. in 2021, I think, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly. And so, I'm yeah. curious, yeah, I, I'm curious to know if you've had any kind of political trajectory. Like, I ask that because I know, I mean, for me, like, I came from a super lefty background, you know, like, I grew up in a um, house that was, you know, like, feminist, and my dad was very involved in the labor movement, was a Marxist, and I identified as a Marxist when I was younger, and then eventually yeah. identified as a socialist, and then I came to this kind of, like, I don't know, heterodox, like, critical of the left position that I'm in now via, you know, a very long road of, you know, being very ideologically committed to the left and to feminism and finally coming out of that and being able to see things a bit more clearly in my perspective. So I don't know where you, how you came along (laughs) your path. So my, I was a libertarian when I was younger Okay. I was very libertarian. And then I moved away from that a little bit. Um, I trained, I did theological training when I was younger. I have a bachelor's in biblical studies. So I did that. Then I switched and went to philosophy. And I was mm-hmm. uh, kind of a libertarian in philosophy. But then I slowly moved away to a different type of kind of the sort of Fraser Institute style free market conservatism. And then I went through a kind of a libertine phase for a while. Um, and now I'm kind of coming back out and realizing that the sort of social conservatism that my parents raised me with when I was really young actually has a lot more to be given to it than what I had maybe thought. Um, so I'm moving to a sort of social conservative direction, but because of the way that my life has gone, the way I've lived my life, I don't consider myself to have the moral high ground to ask other people to live the socially conservative life that I, to this point, haven't always lived. So mm-hmm. I want to be very careful that I don't to, um, set myself up as as a person who, you know, um, lived the life of a, I don't know of a Rick Santorum or something. You know, I didn't, I didn't live like a, a, a priest or a clergyman, you know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't somebody that was, you know, without giving away too much. I just, I just didn't live that kind of life. Um, for, I mean, in my early twenties, I was a lot more closer to that, but in my later twenties, early thirties, no. And I don't want to say to people, well, live this way. I didn't, it, it wouldn't, it's, it's okay for me though. I think to say that my views are shifting in terms of what I, 
in terms of what's coming to the foreground than what's moving to the background. I think that's mm-hmm. fair to say. What does it mean to be a conservative? I mean, I asked that question because uh, partly I don't totally know because I was never very familiar with the right and I was never friends with conservative people. I've only started it's to shifting. engage. With... It's what? Well, it's shifting. It, yeah, okay. Conservatism is shifting. So the impulse of conservatism is, is you're trying, there's something to be preserved. Okay. Right? Typically speaking, what we do or at least the social conservatives that I grew up with were very concerned that um, the proper way to live, that there's a proper path and a proper way to live, and that the individualized choices of atomized of atomized people or the choices of atomized individuals are not made in a vacuum and they affect society at large. And they would say that the that a society is built that the building block of society is not the individual and it's not the state, it's the family. And there's a particular set of roles and rules and behaviors that lead to successful family formation. And those roles and rules ought to be followed. How that has looked over time has shifted a little bit, but there's a core that sticks around, and that core appears to be something like the value of marriage the value of the nuclear family, um, the importance of stable families, and the value of tradition informing those things. That seems to be, it clusters in that region somewhere. So to the libertine would say, do whatever you want as long as you don't harm anyone else. The social conservative would say that while you may choose to try and adopt that lifestyle, it will lead to certain problems down the road that multiply for society that will degrade the conditions of society is what they would argue. So if a man says, you know what, I don't want to be a father. I'll just give up custody and allow someone else to raise my kid. That's my decision. That's my choice. The libertarian might say, okay, well, if he wants to do that, you know, we can't force him to look after a kid he doesn't want. Um, we can say it's immoral, but he can't do that. The conservatives would say, no, we have to put strong social and political incentives in place for men not to do that. That it's important for us to put strong social and political um, incentives into the milieu of culture and society so that that kind of thing does not occur. We want strong pressure and strong guard whales that disincentivize you know, fathers leaving their children. We, we, that's a bad behavior. They don't take the libertarian route on that. And they think that there is a human nature, which is not that it's not a strictly logical progression where if you do A and you do B, therefore C, it's more like A and B make C a whole lot more likely. It's not that to, to, to take something out of uh, uh, the, the realm of health, it's not that diet and exercise will necessarily make sure you have a healthy heart. You can have a heart attack even if you diet and exercise. It's that diet and exercise are conducive to a healthy heart. And the more, and if you have a proper diet and proper exercise, your chances of having a healthy heart and healthy lungs and healthy everything else is much increased. That's the idea. And they would take that and they would say there are certain behaviors in the realm of family and society that lead to a healthier, longer-lasting um more stable, more prosperous society. 
and they want to strongly encourage and incentivize those behaviors and strongly discourage and disincentivize the other behaviors. And what does it mean to be a leftist? Well, that might be a question better answered by you. I, I, I tend to want to, to, to allow people to define themselves on their own terms. Because if I want to define a leftist, I can define it however I want. A leftist is a person who doesn't think and is very stupid. Like I could do that and it wouldn't <laughs> be necessarily very helpful, would it? Mm -hmm. um, a leftist is a person who is always wrong. That's not, <laughs> that's not a very good way to do, to do dialogue. A much better way is to say, how do you define yourself and on what terms do you do that definition? I mean, I don't identify as a leftist anymore. So I guess when I did identify as a leftist, I perceived myself to be seeking uh, an idealistic society, a society that was free from, you know, oppression, where people were not poor, where people had access to all the things that they needed, a more just, more equitable society than the one that existed now, you know, ideally free from violence, you know, from a feminist perspective, free yeah. from male violence against women and the exploitation of women. But I mean, all these things, you know, as somebody who's now critical of the left, a lot of these things now when I say them and think about them seem sort of vague and unspecific. It's like you want to create a better world, but of course people on the right want to create a better world also. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of it. I think, I think there's a certain group of, of, of people who would say, because you haven't accepted my methods, you're, up, you're obviously opposed to my goals. Mm. I want to make the world better by doing X, Y, and Z. And I say X, Y, and Z won't help us. You don't want to make the world better. No, I think X, Y, and Z don't help. X, Y, and Z are a good way to fail. I think X, Y, and Z will help. You know, suppose someone says X is dropping atomic bombs on everything. Y is pouring as much oil into the ocean as we can. And Z is lighting everyone under the age of 15 on fire. I would say those things are going to make the world worse. If they think that's a good idea to help... And they suggest that to me, and I say, those three suggestions, I mean, killing lots of people, dropping nuclear bombs, and pouring oil in the ocean, that's a bad idea. That will make things worse. So a lot of times people will, and I mean, I know that's a very stupid example, but that's why I picked it. Um, a lot of times people will have ideas that they think will help and that other people think will not help at all. Mm -hmm. And the, the goal, the question is not who wants to make the world better. The question is, how do we do that and what will be successful? And I think that this, the, that, I mean, I would say that my goal is to, I want two things. I want one to bring back a sport, sort of sparse liberalism that's committed to truth where the liberalism is at the political level. And we use that as a um, conflict resolution strategy for determining what we will do without actually going to war over it. Right. Does that make some sense? Mm -hmm. We're trying to avoid a war, so we're going to use liberalism as the meta. But liberalism doesn't tell you what is good. Liberalism doesn't tell you what is valuable. Liberalism doesn't define for you what's meaningful. And so those sorts of things are going to have to be answered in a different way. And what that's going to mean... And 
And what that's going to mean is that we're going to have competing visions of what is good and what is meaningful. That's okay. We can do that. Um, but, but, but we want a liberalism that will allow us to have a conflict resolution going on. That's very important. And then the second thing is that I'm on, on about is uh, I, I think the, the postmodern milieu we're in has hollowed meaning out. Mm-hmm. And made it utterly subjective and um, has led to a loss of, has led to a type of spurious nihilism and a lack of uh, seriousness, which, which manifests itself in two memes. One is we are not a serious people, and the second is clown world. We are not a serious people is the meme-level description of the fact that we no longer take anything to be meaningful enough to actually matter in a serious way, and we just laugh our way through the decline. And clown world is a description of the nihilistic, relativistic um, absurdity that lies at the heart of postmodern thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me that part of what's happened in the West in any case is that we've sort of descended into hedonism and that many of us have, I hate to use the word privilege because it's become a very annoying word, but many people living (laughs) in the West have so much privilege and they don't have to deal with any real world problems like trying to find food or shelter or clean water or yeah. You know, they aren't, they aren't struggling very much. They're very comfortable, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But they sort of have descended into focusing on really ridiculous things that don't matter at all, um, which has led to things like playing around with gender and inventing pronouns and messing around with your body in unnecessary and actually harmful ways worrying about microaggressions, inventing racism when there isn't any, which is not to say that racism doesn't exist. It's to say that a lot of people invent racism where there isn't any, Um, and so on and so forth. I don't know what your theory is on all that or if that's something that you see happening. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, This is clearly, clearly that this is a hollowing out of meaning that people have misunderstood. Of, of course, nothing means anything. Mm-hmm. There is no inherent meaning to anything at all. Nothing is inherently more valuable than anything else. Healthiness is not being, is not, you can't elevate any ideal of health because that would oppress or displace, or that would privilege one ideal of health at the expense of another, and that would create a hierarchy of social value, and that would knock someone else down the, the food chain, so to speak, so you can't do that. So you can't have anything that's inherently value, all you can have is personal preferences. Right. That's it. Right. Like you can't say this is, this is true with, this is the truth of gender thing as well. Right. There's, there are no, there's, there's their, their deconstruction of gender entails that there is no such thing as a man or a woman. Those are just categories that we can change endlessly. However we want. Mm. Those are categories that we've created and we can get rid of. There is no man or woman in the world. There are the linguistic categories of man and woman, and we fight, we sort them however we please. 
No, that, like, I mean, that's not going to end up, right? Like, yeah. it's gonna exact, it's going to be exactly the following thing. Because there is no inherent thing to be a man or woman, the paradigms, what's happening right now is that people are coasting by on the paradigms that their parents are have. The next generation that's come up is not going to have any idea of what a man or, quote, a woman will will be the left the 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 far left thinks oh this is fine they don't need paradigms the political right is saying oh yes they do there are more and less successful ways to be men and women there are more and less successful ways to behave and to structure society so that there's proper family formation and having a free-for-all and saying that None of the social symbols that we create indicate anything about anyone is not a good way to do that. You're wearing a dress. That doesn't make you a woman. Okay. That doesn't make you a man. Okay. Well, what makes me a man? There's nothing that makes you a man other than your own internal identification. Now, you could quibble with that and say, well, look, wearing a dress really doesn't make you a woman. Okay, fine. But... But there there should be some set of symbols in society that allows people to indicate to other people whether or not they're male or female because in the interest of family formation, having kids, that kind of matters. The, the second thing that I would add to that is if you say that there's no better or worse, that means that you have no goals. There is no more successful or less successful outcome. Mm-hmm. Their goal is equality. As long as all the outcomes are relatively even by some standard of evenness, by the standard of of social hierarchy, it's all fine. And my answer is, to to turn a phrase, I can get equality by mowing the lawn and making sure that everyone is equally unhappy and miserable. Right? I could do that pretty easily. So I don't think that equality is the goal. If we set the goal of being happy and building things good and success and joy, well, some people are going to live lives differently than other people, and that's going to lead to varying levels of success, right? That that's We have to allow for this. We have to allow that some people will make better choices than others. The political uh, extremists would say no. The choices are only successful or failure because society sets it up so that certain choices will succeed and certain choices will fail. Mm-hmm. You, you see how that that fits together, and that creates a milieu on their view where we have to structure society, no matter how people make their choices, that they will end up relatively equal. And that's not going to work. That's impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think your point about there being nothing to strive for, if nothing is better or worse than anything else, is an interesting one. And true. I mean, if we look at basic things like, you know, you aren't supposed to say that it's bad to be obese or fat. Um, You're not even supposed to say that it's better to eat healthy food and it's bad to eat junk food because that's judging and shaming. And in fact, you should just do whatever you want. I mean, there's all these like influencers online who are of the millennial and younger generation and I would say that it's all sort of third wave feminist leaning um, who say, you know, you should never feel bad about anything you do. You shouldn't feel bad about anything you should eat. You shouldn't feel bad about how you look. You shouldn't feel bad if you have like certain kinks or fetishes because that's sex shaming. You shouldn't feel bad about anything that you do that's 
possibly, you know, define anything that's defined as sex or sexuality is inherently good, apparently. I mean, except for rape, I suppose, unless it's somehow consensual rape. (laughs) Their entire thing thing reduces to two principles, consent and power. Mm -hmm. That's it. Consent and power relations. There is no, because, and here's why. There's no inherent purpose to sex. Right. Sex has no inherent meaning. It has no inherent purpose. It has no inherent telos. And therefore, it can be used, it's a pure, it's a, it's purely an instrumental tool that can be used however we want to, so long as we don't harm anyone else. And so long as everyone involved is consent and has similar power levels. That's it. Right. That is, having lived this somewhat licentious life at points in my life, false. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I've talked about this in other forums and other venues. Um, but, you know, when I was a young woman, um, so like when I was 19 years old, that was 1999. Um, and so I grew up in like third wave feminism, right? And so to me, I thought that the way to have power in the world and the way to feel empowered, in this case, in terms of you know, relationships with men and in terms of sex was to behave like a man. In other words, you know, like I saw these guys and they were players um, and they were sleeping around and doing what they want and they didn't feel insecure at all. They felt powerful. And I was like, well, I guess that's what I should do. And that's sort of what you learn in feminism. You know, you should just do whatever you want. And that's even, that's even more, I think, enforced nowadays for young women and for men who are encouraged to just hook up and not seek meaningful relationships and taught that sex isn't really a special or intimate thing um, and that it doesn't have any meaning and that they should just go online on these so-called hookup apps and, you know, swipe through faces and click yes or no and then go out on dates with strangers and maybe hook up with them, maybe not, because maybe that's fun. And it's not, you know, like I don't necessarily think casual sex is always or inherently bad though i know that lots of people do think that but i certainly think that the message that like sex has no meaning and that it's sort of like it doesn't all it is is a physical experience like it doesn't have anything really to do with um emotional intimacy or like psychological intimacy or some people would say spiritual intimacy although i probably wouldn't use that term because i don't know what that means enough to use it but like it doesn't and that you should just feel nothing about it and that it's weird that you would connect with somebody you have sex with. Like you would have sex with somebody and then you have feelings after and you should try to shut that down and cut that off rather than understand that that's like actually a normal thing or I think that's a normal thing anyway. Yeah. Um, I think one second we have to grab something. Okay. It's very important. Okay. <laughs> Ta-da! Feminism postmodernism. Yeah, okay. This is from the 90s. Okay. I haven't read that one. You grew up third wave feminism. You can edit this out later. How old are you? Do you mind if I ask? 42. Okay, so you... I'm, I'm 37. So you would have grown up right at the... In, in the... What I would call the decadent phase of third wave feminism. Mm-hmm. You grew up in the height of the Lena Dunham era. Or just at the beginning, 
just in that, like that early, like that late nineties, early two thousands takeoff of that sort of, of the empowered woman can do anything a man can do. Yeah. Nobody ever asked. Yeah. But would they want to, why should what men do be the default of society? Nobody ever asked that question, but, yeah. but, 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 but behold, this happened. Got to figure out how to get that mic to, to stop changing the adjustment. Okay. But that happened and it went on. Okay. Very good. And because they made everything about power. And what they said is, well, you've been socially conditioned to want to be in with a monogamous relationship with a man because that's what men want to blah, blah, blah. And so now there was, that was the second way feminists who said, no, 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 men are just trying to use you. All sex is rape. I believe it was Andrea Dworkin that said that. Right. And so we have the following dynamic going. Okay. We have the second wave feminist and the third wave feminist. The second wave feminist says, Oh, I see what you're up to. Oh, these men just want to sleep with women. They're just using women. They're just using their power to control women. That's why they want to ban abortions. Mm. And then the third wave feminist comes around and says, Oh, no. Men want to stop women from having sex. That's what men want to do. The, the second wave feminist goes, no, no, no. The men are trying to... And then, no, you're... No, no, no. It's And so they're having a fight. And then there's, the, there's another set of feminists that come along, the sort of Christian feminists who come from a different perspective. And the Christian feminist says, oh, I see what these men are trying to do. They're trying to get you to take off your clothes and sleep around and be immoral so they can sleep with you. Yeah. And then the other feminists go... And not oh, marry you. No, no, no. No, the men... No, they they want us to they want to control our bodies by putting all these things on us so that we blah blah blah. So the way to get around it is to sleep around. Men want us not to sleep around so they can control us. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, men want you to sleep around so they can get sex all they want and blah blah blah. No, no, no. Men don't want women to sleep around. Men want women to stop sleeping around so they can control us. No, no, no. Men want to legalize abortion. That way, there's no consequences for their pregnancy. No, no, no. Men want to illegalize abortion so they control our bodies. No, no men want to legalize abortions so they can sleep around. No, no men want to ban abortions so they can control. And 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 the, all of these people are fighting over what men are trying to do to control them. And men are just like, we're not doing any of that. <laughs> right? You see the point? It's this entire cynical thing where they're all going, oh, let's see what men are trying to do to control us. And it's like, what do you want to be liberated from? Patriarchy. The patriarchy. The point and the point is that men and women are not blank slates. That's wrong. Yeah. And we can't be socialized in whatever way we want. That's also wrong. And so there's a certain set of behaviors that will generally lead to better outcomes than not. And the question is about what is the ethical set of behaviors? The reason that certain men want to legalize abortion is because they have an ethical view that says abortion is okay and that women should be allowed to choose. The reason that other men want to ban abortion is because they have a view of abortion that says it's not good for society and that it's taking an innocent life. Mm. It's not about exercising power over women. Now someone says, but it does exercise power over women. Yeah, but from whose perspective? Because there's one group of feminists that think men want to legalize abortion so that they can get rid of kids, so that they can exercise power over women by 
uh, socializing them into promiscuity so that they can sleep around. And then there's another set of women that says, no, you want to ban abortion so you control our bodies and socialize us into monogamous relationships to keep us under control so that you can maintain the power of the patriarchy. And all of this is about social power, which they want to liberate themselves from, right? Um, and at no point does any of this ask what actually makes a society healthy and what actually is human nature. And are there better and worse ways of doing family that lead to greater or level levels of success? Because someone's going to ask at some point when these people say, well, I, why can't I do family this way? Well, it's not that you can't try. It's that I just don't know if it'll work. Right. I mean, I could try holding a baseball bat by the, by instead of having the thin end as the handle and the big fat end as this part that hits the ball, I could like flip it around. I could do that with a tennis racket. Instead of having the handle in my hand and the big fat round part to hit the ball with, I'll hold on to the big fat round part and try to hit it with that thin little handle. Can I do that? Yes. Is there anything inherent in the tennis racket that prevents me from t grabbing it by the wrong end? No. But there's a way to swing a tennis racket that's more likely to lead to good tennis. <laughs> right? And the way that the, the, the political left has, has responded to this is to say, yes, but that's only because that's the way the rules of tennis are played. What if we change the rules of tennis? Mm -hmm. And I sit there and go, there's a certain extent to which you can no longer change the rules of the world. And human beings are creatures that are built to seek meaning and to create families. And with those two things in play, that's going to limit this series of options. Yes, we can have different rules for society. We can change certain things, but there are some things we can't change. And the radical people who say, well, we should be able to set it up however we want and have no consequences don't realize you can't create a world without consequences. They think that choices only matter because of the way we set up society, and that's not true. There, there are rules. I'm not claiming to know what those rules are. I'm not claiming to have any answers. I am claiming that the nihilism that says there's no inherent anything to anything and the only reason why there are different outcomes is because of the structure of society is wrong. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I'm just anticipating my audience listening to this and some of them getting mad at me for letting you explain feminism and me not saying anything. But I mean, for the most part, you are right. Like, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I could get into the the debate around the legalization or criminalization of abortion, but I don't really want to get into that whole debate. I think that debate is flawed, and I think pre pre presenting it like that is flawed, but feminists have presented it like that. I'm not yeah, blaming your descriptor for that. But my, my point is that the thing that we have to get rid of is the idea that the most important questions are questions of power and not what's good. Yeah. It's just silly to say, well, everything is about power. I mean, and at the risk of really alienating your audience, mm -hmm. um, I wonder how many of the straight women in your audience would say, yeah, I'd like a man without a job who's very short and very weak and not good looking. Well, generally speaking, people go after people who are what? Doing well. Who, who we say... Have it together. Yeah, who are ambitious, who make money, who can take care of themselves, who can take care of a family. Right. 
And there's going to be principles that underlie success over time. Some people, here, here's the example we'll use. I'm going to use a sports analogy. <laughs> and, but it's going to be a, a really easy to understand analogy, okay? Okay. In the NHL and hockey, there are goalies. And the goalie's job is to stop the puck. Almost all the goalies use a series, a particular set of moves. And they almost all look the same. When they're playing, you can see that they're using the same series of moves. That they they drop to their knees a lot to stop pucks along the ice. Um, you'll see them sliding around on their feet or sliding around on their knees back and forth. You see them, a lot of them use the same moves. There's one guy that didn't do that. Pardon me. Dominic Hasek. He's considered to be the greatest goalie ever. He flopped around like a fish on dry land and somehow the puck didn't go in. If you try to analyze his style, it's ridiculous. It just looks funny. You see him like rolling around and like sticking feet out at weird angles. It's the strangest thing you've ever seen in your life. Nobody has ever been able to duplicate that style. Ever. Okay? Ever. It's never been done. I'll use another example. Jimi Hendrix. Everyone's heard some Jimi Hendrix. It's amazing. Watch him play. He doesn't play like anybody else. You see him like drop to his knees and like move to like bend the guitar to get different notes. You see him hitting his guitar at strange angles. Uh, you see him shaking it to get particular tones out. Those guys didn't play by any of the rules that other people played for and they managed to be successful. Every single other person that's tried to do that has not been successful. There haven't been any goalies that have Dominic Hasek's style since he left, and there aren't any guitar players that have the style of Jimi Hendrix since he died. Nobody's been able to duplicate it successfully. Not like him. He was special. For the vast majority of us, there's rules. I, I play guitar. I would never attempt to play like Jimi Hendrix because I'm not gifted that way. I'm not special. I'm not an outlier. Everyone seems to think that they're an outlier and that they can invent their own path and be wildly successful without looking at the things that have come before them. And that's not correct. Um, you could use the same thing in the area of health. I'm going to invent my own diet. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my own research and figure out my own diet. And I'm going to invent my own workout routine. For the vast majority of people, that doesn't work. For the vast majority of people, the correct thing to do is do a half hour of cardio four times a week and then do the major lifts, bench press, squat, deadlifts, and then to eat healthy, right? Avoid sugars, avoid processed foods, eat lots of vegetables, have proper meal size. That's that's what's good for health. You know, avoid eating a lot of processed trans fat saturated you know like eat well now i know that there are some pro athletes who go on strange sides like you know what do you eat i only eat chicken that's it very rarely that works for some people but for 99 percent of us it doesn't and what most of us need is to follow the paradigms of people that have come before us 
that can show us the way to be successful. There are some people, some academics, I'm thinking like Albert Einstein, who thought of the theory of relativity while working in a patent office. Sure. Yeah. Um, or, or Leibniz, who invented his calculus notation while researching the, the Brunswick family history. Sure. Yeah. Those guys did it. 99% of us, the right thing to do is to go to the university, enroll in classes, learn from the teachers, and do the work that way. For 99% of us, you know, just thinking about physics while we're at our job is not enough for us to come up with brand new ideas and world-changing uh, interventions in the history of physics, like Einstein did. We're just not like that. And, and so this idea that we have to deconstruct and allow everyone to, to reinvent the wheel of their life with no paradigm because the existence of a paradigm creates social pressure which socializes people into particular roles which maintain the power structures is a really bad way to look at the world, man. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you made a good point, which is that, you know, while feminists are arguing over what men want, and so they're doing this because they want women to stop having sex, they're doing this because they want women to stop enjoying sex, they're doing this because they want women to have more sex, they're doing this because they want to force women into the home and to make their babies and so on and so forth. I mean, the you're right, I think that this is, you know, like men aren't they don't, there's no, some, no like grand master plan where all men are thinking, this is what we want women to do. You know, men are probably mostly just like all people focused on their own lives to start. <laughs> and, and yeah, I, I just think, I think like, why, why, why do men focus so much on, on, on angling up the hierarchy of success? Well, because those are the men that have the most options when it comes to who they want to date and marry. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tom Brady probably... I mean, look, Michael Jordan went to a club once and 3,000 women showed up. The guy who works at, at, at Home Depot doesn't have that problem. Because a really successful guy like Michael Jordan is attractive to a lot of women. Um, and... The guy who's tending plants in the in the in the garden section doesn't have that. That's got nothing to do with a, a structure of society that socializes women into blah 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 blah. Because I could turn that around and says yes, and there's a structure of society that socializes a smaller segment of women into becoming feminists. And it does this for its own own benefit and own power. It it creates and constructs feminism as a way to reify the categories of the patriarchy to maintain a power structure. Like, I mean, we can do this all day long. It's it's silly. The question that we want to get back to is what's true, and are there ways of living that are more effective than others, and is there a way to structure society that is better, it, that is better, better for more people than other ways of structuring society. Is there a way of doing that? Because if all you're going to focus on is making everyone equal, then let's just make everyone miserable and we'll be done with it because we'll all be equal. I promise you that. But there's no way of making everybody equally great or equally wonderful. Not everybody gets to or be equally is desirable. I mean, there's a lot of men. I mean, third wave feminism has lied to women about all sorts of things, but there's a lot of men who spend a lot of time whining about how they can't get chicks and it's not fair and they want a girlfriend and they can't get one. And meanwhile, they're doing nothing. 
and they're not successful or ambitious. They might be attractive or they might be unattractive. I mean, a lot of a lot of men on Reddit threads tend to be like, oh, it's because all women want like rich, tall guys who look like blank, blank athlete or celebrity, which is obviously not true because all sorts of men who don't look like that have good partners, get married, have kids, are happy and so on and so forth. I think more than anything, I mean, being tall really helps a lot. I'll say that, but um, like, right. But that's, but that's a fact. I mean, that's not a socially constructed beauty standard. Look, if women want to tear down the patriarchy, a good way to do it would be date men at the bottom of the, of the ladder. (laughs) That will raise them up and it will bring the men at the top down. It will. If I guess was, they should all date poor men, probably. But. Right. If they all dated losers at the bottom of the spectrum, if they dated guys that looked like me, maybe we wouldn't have this problem. Of course, then I would only be saying that because I want to maintain my power to my own benefit, blah, 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 blah. blah. And we're on the same rabbit trail again. It's, it's just ridiculous. The question that we have to, to, to cope with is, are there ways, are there better or worse ways of structuring a society? And I think that right now we've created a society in which nobody benefits and nobody's happy except for the top 10% of, of people in level of attractiveness. I would say like, look, the people who are, are only people who are happy in the dating market right now are, are like the top 5% of men. Hmm. Certainly on dating apps, the only people that are happy are the top 5% of men because the rest of the men on dating apps aren't getting anywhere. And the women are competing with everyone else and they're not getting in commitment. Yeah, they're not getting their what they want either. Like why women go on dating apps is like baffling to me because it does not get any of them what they want. Right. So what are we doing? We've also created a situation in which in which um, it's now socially taboo to walk up to people and talk to them. Right. Because we all we've all been living with covid. And so what we all do is we all socially distance from each other. Right. We don't walk up and talk to somebody who we might see that might be interesting because we're, we're, we're social distancing. Right. right. That's what we've been doing for two years. So we've had two years of everyone be social distancing and don't talk to each other in public. So we've all lost that skill or at least we're rusty. Most of us are. And then we've created a situation where we have dating apps where the only thing you can do is swipe left and swipe right. And all of the other attractive elements that might bond people together, like what you're like in public, how funny you might be, never get traction. Because when it comes to trying to figure out who's got a nice personality on Tinder, you're throwing darts, man, because you can't tell from a picture. Our parents' wisdom that you can't tell a book by its cover is beginning to come back in vogue in a very big way. So so what do we do? I don't know. I, I can't begin to offer a solution or an answer. And I certainly wouldn't be able to, to come up with one. I look back at my, my 20s and 30s and think I wasted a lot of time thinking that, well, you know, I'm single. I don't need to settle down. I don't need to look for anyone. You know, it's okay if I'm single for long stretches or not. It doesn't really matter. If there's a one-night stand or not, that doesn't really matter. Looking back now, I think, no, it, it probably should have mattered. Yeah. And it could have mattered. And maybe my life and the life of the people around me might have been better had I acted like it mattered a little more. But at the same time, if I say that, you know, if I say that, people say, well, you're just disappointed because it didn't work out for you. Uh, I'm not saying my life didn't work out. I'm very happy with my son and my, I own my own home. I'm doing okay. I have, I am not hurting for money, but, but could I have been better and could I have made a stronger contribution to my community and could I have made the lives of the other people around me better? Could I have contributed to the idea of family stability and could I have set a paradigm for what family is for my son? Yeah, I might have been able to do that. Maybe I still will. Maybe I won't, maybe, maybe that time, you know, 
marriage is a, is a young man's game. Maybe that time's passed me by. Maybe it hasn't. But the point is not what makes me personally accrue social power. The question is, what could I have done to set a better example and to create a better life for my son? And would it have been better when I was younger to take more seriously the role of relationships? Might that have been something that could have been better? Is that at least possible? Is that something we should consider? Or should we just say relationships are about nothing but consent to power and drop it there and say everything is just personal preference? I'm going to switch tracks slightly just because... um... There was one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you. There's a number of reasons that I want to talk to you. I mean, I also just think, find you interesting. But I appreciate you, you've written some interesting things about woke capitalism. And I've shifted my view, obviously, on my grand opposition to capitalism in favor of uh, socialism. And I, I guess, you know, like, so when, when we're talking about what would what works better, what would make for a better society. Um, And when we're talking about power, I mean, what is it that you think the left is trying to achieve? Because when I look at the left now, I think, well, it looks like you're trying to gain power. It looks like you're just trying to trade this power for another kind of power. (laughs) Are you meaning to say that when the left takes power that they won't immediately keep it? That absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that perhaps, perhaps that they're not entirely motivated merely by justice and equality, but that all the previous regimes of Marxism, like the Soviet Union, like China, that all these things have failed because when the people who who claim to be wanting that power get into power, that they use it for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and that perhaps we need checks and balances. Wow, that's a, that's a really interesting idea. It's almost like communism won't work and can't work mm-hmm. Be- because it requires the type of society-wide agreement that just isn't possible. Not everyone well. agrees on everything, mm-hmm. and that's what that's what socialism would require. It would require the kind of broad agreement and central planning that we just don't have. Well, if we did things all this way, I mean. This is why all of these so-called socialist utopias wind up horribly. I like it when they say, well, that's because of the behavior of capitalists. Look, if you just stop trading with the capitalists, that's the loss for the capitalists because the socialists have a more robust society, right? So if you just cut off all the capitalists and don't deal with them, shouldn't you guys be better off? I mean, when the capitalists say that they'll no longer trade with you because it's an embargo, shouldn't you say, thank you, excellent, now we don't have to worry about you anymore? Oh, no, you go broke. And why is that? Because the engine of capitalism, which makes it go, that creates the prosperity, just doesn't exist in socialist economies. But there's a deeper problem here. And the deeper problem is that is that the people who are very broadly speaking on the, on the left and in those circles um, – when they say, well, they hate capitalism, when you ask them, what are you going to replace it with specifically? How are you going to account for like supply and demand for the tacit market signals? I mean, the old joke is that the needs of the upper, that the needs of the bureaucratic class come first because the bureaucratic class has to decide whose needs come first. That's the old joke. I, I mean, is that where we're going No. So what they want 
what their desire is, if you were to ask them, is, well, I just want equality and I want fairness. So no, they look at somebody like Elon Musk and they say, one guy's got a billion dollars, one guy's got nothing. That's a problem with the system. We need to fix it. Okay. Fair enough. Do you really think that you're capable of rebuilding the system from the ground up and understanding all of the individual parts and making it go? Has anyone, has there ever been a successful socialist or communist democracy that has stuck around and been prosperous for a long period of time? Ever. No, it's not even close. And the whole, the whole blaming capital, you know, well, that's because the capitalists won't let us. I'm sorry, the KGB was doing everything they could to subject to to um, uh, subvert capitalism as well. So, so everyone was doing espionage and everyone was fighting and all the rest of it. But the, the, the fact is that we have hundreds of examples of long-term stable social democracies that are relatively prosperous and we have them all across the world. You can't get one for communism except for China, which is now committing genocide. You can't get one? This is a hint. And the hint is that empathy leads to bad decision-making, and it leads to... Empathy poisons the ability of people. It gets them onto a moral high horse where they feel like they need to go after their enemies in a wrong way. Once you become empathy-poisoned politically, and you then decide that you're going to take your vengeance out on everyone who's wealthy, or you're going to vent your wrath towards the upper class... When it comes to actually trying to set something up, as soon as somebody becomes successful, you're going to vent your wrath at them because you're going to treat it like it's a zero-sum game, and it doesn't need to be. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because it seems that that is what... I mean, I don't call them the left, call them woke, whatever, call them progressives, maybe. It seems like that's what's happened. Like, that seems like that's at the root of, or at least part of what's at the root of cancel culture, which is going after anybody who's successful. I mean, we can talk about Joe Rogan, for example, and we should talk about Joe Rogan because your commentary on what happened to Rogan was quite astute, but he's so successful. And that really, there was no master plan there. You know, he started a podcast with his friends and it was compelling to people and he kept doing it. And it became the most successful podcast ever. And what's happened is that these these woke activists, these leftists, these progressives have done everything and continue to do everything in their power to try to destroy him. And why? Why? Because they want his power. There is a okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put this away for a second and just set aside. There's a the. the the people who are doing this have not yet realized that there is a if 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 the underlying sin of the capitalist is greed, the underlying sin of the socialist is envy. Mm. There is a certain kind of person that sees the success of others as belonging to them. There's a certain kind of person that looks at my Twitter presence and sees my success such as it is as if as if twitter mattered um as if twitter mattered 
and they see that success, if you can call a completely digital identity with a lot of followers success, whatever that counts for, they see that as belonging to them. That they deserve to have the influence that I have, whatever influence I have, as if it's much. But whatever that is, they deserve that. They deserve 100,000 followers. They deserve lots of retweets. They deserve lots of likes. They deserve for their articles and their threads and their ideas to go viral. I am a pro- like, why are you listening to him? That guy clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's absurd. It's absurdism. There's a certain type of person that sees the success of other people as belonging to them. I should have been that. And it's just not true all the time. Now, sometimes people get robbed, right? That does happen. I mean, I've seen situations where somebody who um, should have been picked for the ball team didn't get picked for the ball team, or somebody who should have been given the lead role in the play didn't get it. Okay, like that can happen. I'm not saying that. But when you see every successful person and think that success ought to belong to me or I could do better than that person... Um, you know, maybe, maybe ask yourself, why do you have a proper view of yourself? I, I am not claiming to have been successful because of my semi, my niche micro celebrity on Twitter. That's ridiculous. Silly. It would be absurd for me to suggest that. But insofar as it goes, I think the reason that I've picked up the following I have is because I do a very good job of adding ideas together, of explaining myself, and communicating well. And if someone thinks they can do a better job than me, they they can have my, you know, they can start their own Twitter account. The idea that, I mean, everyone says this, like, Elon Musk is only successful because he had tax breaks. Everyone had the access to tax breaks. Everyone did. We all, we, all, we all have access to the roads. Okay, maybe you couldn't have been Elon Musk, but you could have been, I don't know, the guy down the road who owns his house. You, you could have owned your own home and your own car. You could have. Right? Had you... Had you um, that's not an unreasonable goal, as they say. So why do you look at the success of other people and think it belongs to you or think that their success is unjustified in some way? I I don't understand this. There's an entire view of people that think that the success of others belongs to them. Your success should go to me. I should be the one that people are listening to. Well, maybe you think that, but, but why do you think that? Is that a justified view? Right, and I think that that element exists deeply, deeply on the left. I think that's a, and I don't think they've wrestled with it. I no, think, I, don't I think, think there is a an element. I I think that there's a deep element, particularly on the academic left, of of we are um, the intelligent, well thought ones. We have all the ideas. We're the smart ones to know how life works. And it's because they've been successful in one domain that they think that they're that they now know how to structure all of society as as if as if that were a thing, and it's ridiculous as if the only body as if the only people that have any business 
adding to the public conversation as people with PhDs and everyone else should take a backseat and watch them exquisitely perform their ideas into the world. And it's just not true. It's not. And the vast majority of people are regular people who speak plainly. We're not impressed by the fact that you can have created an entire jargon. The fact that you've created an entire jargon isn't evidence that you're smarter than anyone else. It's evidence that you've siloed yourself off from the world. Mm-hmm. And so I consider the size of my account to be an indictment of their ability to communicate. And given that they had entire university departments dedicated to communication, you'd think they'd be better at it. Maybe the problem isn't, isn't that maybe the problem is your worldview. Maybe that's where you've gone off the rails. Well, and yeah, the fact that they, I mean, I, I was in academia for, I did a master's degree in gender sexuality and women's studies. Um, and so in retrospect, mm-hmm. I recognize that what you learn in those kinds of departments is how to regurgitate. Um, you're not really learning how to think critically. You're learning how to use the correct language and it becomes very easy. I mean, I, you can, you can write those essays over and over and over again because you know what kind of language you're supposed to use and you know what, how to structure your paper so that you'll get an A. And, you know, you are, you're operating in a silo and you're telling one another, oh, you're so smart, you're so smart, this is brilliant, this is brilliant, this is brilliant, and you don't know how to communicate with regular people anymore, and then you act as though regular people are stupid because they don't speak the way that you do, which I think, you know, that happened, I think that's part of the issue that they have with people like Rogan um, and people like me and all sorts of people who have been relatively successful in terms of communicating, in terms of writing, in terms of podcasts, in terms of their YouTube channel or whatever. I mean, these, these people who are able to grow an audience actually organically, this is just happening because people are interested in what they have to say. They're interested in their opinions. Right. They're interested they the way that they interview people like Joe Rogan doesn't pretend to be some genius. He is a very smart man, um, but he doesn't pretend to be some genius. He's a genuinely cur- curious person. He speaks in regular ways that people understand and relate to. He speaks like many people speak. So, of course, people want to gravitate towards them. Like, regular people don't want to listen to a bunch of academics spout jargon. That's not interesting. And you don't understand what they're talking about. I don't even think they really understand what they're talking about either. And the, and the second thing, there's a there's an there's an element here of um, part of what they're trying to do, or what it it looks to me like these people are trying to do is to um, place themselves in a position of authority within the conversation by hijacking the language. Mm-hmm. You know, like they set themselves up as though they're as though they're brilliant, and they're not. I think that the guy who starts up a business and hires a bunch of people and figures out how to make a million dollars is pretty smart because I bet you a lot of those academics would love to have a million dollars. And if they could figure out how to do that by being academics, they'd make a million dollars if they could, but they don't know how. So maybe their brilliance doesn't extend to every area of life. Maybe it doesn't. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it seems to me that 
the sort of siloed niche academic expertise where you find the thinnest slice of an academic discipline and become an expert in that thing is not the same as the person who has a lot of really deep, varied life experience and knows how people operate. Mm. You know, I think Joe Rogan has that in a way that a lot of these other guys don't actually have it. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, I mean, I'm just sorry, I'm asking specifically about Rogan now, but do you think that like people went after him? Do you think the primary motive of all those people who went after Rogan, first they tried it with transphobia. He's transphobic oh, yeah. because yeah. he interviewed certain people. Now well, he's a racist. They they found they want... Right. It's, it's, it's they wanted to take him down because they view his success as belonging to them. Hmm. They have the correct views and they are morally good. Therefore, they deserve that large platform. Why should Joe have all that platform? He doesn't have the right views. He's not. That platform should be put to the uses that we think it should be put for. And that the guests, like, they're acting as though Joe Rogan is like a public service. Or as if Joe Rogan is like some kind of office to which you get elected. <laughs> the Joe Rogan of the United States. We didn't appoint you to office, Joe Rogan. It's like some sort of Right, like lawyer, like like like. There's a series of offices called lawyer. There's an office of judge. There's a social. There's an office of of police officer. Right. These are all social offices. Right. You have the office of the presidency. You have the office of the vice president, and you have the office of the Joe Rogan. Like, no, he was he's an unelected private citizen that people want to follow. You don't deserve his audience. There is absolutely nothing stopping you. From doing exactly what Joe Rogan did, buying a cheap camera, starting a podcast. In fact, there's a lot of people doing that. There's no shortage of leftist podcasts that people could watch if they want to. They just don't care. Well, Joe Rogan grew his audience. You could have done it. Nobody complains about the success of the trap. The- they never complain about the success of the Chapo Trap House, do they? Right. They grew an audience. You could grow one like them, but you don't. Why? Because your people don't want to watch you because you're not that not interesting. They don't care. Your ideas are brilliant and insightful and interesting to you. If people really thought they were that great, they would gravitate to you. They don't. There's a well, reason for that. Totally. And it's funny because they, you know, they really can't. I mean, they I think they probably do. But they really can't blame that on capitalism and patriarchy. They can't blame it on power and money that Joe Rogan is so successful. Because, I mean, part of what their problem is, is that he's messing with the dominant narrative. So he's messing with the corporate narrative. You know, he's messing with what CNN is pumping out. Um, and and he's you know he's he's challenging that he's just one guy and it's not even necessarily sometimes it's him challenging it but often it's just his interviewees who have been banned by mainstream media who the politicians who are currently in power are also trying to censor and um you know destroy the reputations of these people uh and you know so i don't know i mean i there's no it doesn't make sense Their arguments don't make sense. Their ideology doesn't make sense. It's not coherent. Um, It's very often extremely hypocritical, which drives me crazy. 
Um, but it, yeah, it's funny because if they thought about it for half a second, it would really throw a wrench into this argument that certain people are successful because of these systems of power, because the systems of power are on their side and the corporate world's on their side, big tech, big pharma, the Democrats, mainstream yeah. media, <laughs> who else is there? Yeah. Well, so if you want to actually go back, there's another book we need to check on. Give me just a second. Okay. The Rebel Cell. Okay. Got it. I see it. So Andrew Potter and Joseph Heath, that, that was written about in about 2000. And what they did is they went from the, um, they went from. Oh, you froze for a minute there. They, they did a, uh, what would you call it? Like a history where they dug up how the 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 movement from the hippie movement, building the counterculture movement right up to the two thousands. I mean, you'll remember Naomi Klein and No Logo, Kelly Lawson, Ad Busters, all I of do. that. What was that all? I around? applied for a job there once. I didn't get it though. <laughs> yeah, right. And this is the point. Right. That's beautiful. That's a wonderful thing. And it, what was their whole thing? It was culture jamming, right? We have to, we have to go through the culture, right? We have to go through the culture, and we have to allow people to see that it's the culture of conformity that capitalism causes. Blah blah blah. Capitalism requires conformity, and it needs nice white people to white live in nice white houses with white picket fences and do their thing, so that the capitalist man. Blah 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 blah. And so it was all about nonconformity, right? Guess what, man? Nonconformity is what makes capitalism work. Right. People being different, it's the new cycles of obsolescence which create the fashion industry. It's not that everyone dresses the same, it's that some people dress different and create new trends. You don't need to buy the newest jeans if you always dress the same. The factors of obsolescence are created by the people who are trying to be different. That's the point. So what they do is they, they drag the new left and they or sorry, they don't drag it, they trace the new left going all the way back from the thirties, forties, fifties, drag right up to the two thousands. Okay? Up to then it was the, the it was the critique of mass society, right? Everyone's walking around zombies, they're all asleep, man. They don't get it. They need to wake up so that we can have a revolution. We need to free our minds, right? That's why drugs are valuable. That's why the man sends the fuzz round to bust your stash, man. Because it'll free your mind, right? That was the new left. Everyone's smoking pot, right? White guys having dreadlocks, all of it, right? You remember, you know this. These were all, every one of these guys was like trying to be like different, man, right? And I thought everyone else was a conformist. And the worst thing you could be was a conformist and sell out to the system. Well, that, that underlying thing began to crumble when it started to be realized that that wasn't true. And so the next stage of that theory is to, is to take it a step deeper, right, is to go right, is to, to step into the postmodern and look at not just that the system is lying to us, but look at the underlying constructs that are underneath that. So we're going away from just the economic system and maybe the social system, and we're going right down into the linguistic systems, the systems of thought, into the psychology. And as we deepen that critique into mass society, we realize that it's not just that, man, like the, the conformity of the system. It's that the underlying assumptions and the epistemology is rotten and everything else. We have to deconstruct the epistemology. We have to recognize that everything is just socially constructed, right? It's the, the critique morphed. It started out as anti-capitalist, but we've now recognized that it's not. 
It's not. There's no contradiction. The counterculture was never odds with capitalism. It pretended to be. Well, and the clan got really, really wealthy by selling books against capitalism, didn't she? The capitalist market has done an excellent has done an excellent job of providing socialist resources. (laughs) Well, and the the capitalist market has supported, you know, like. Black Lives Matter was, you know, supported by Amazon and and Nike and, you know, all oh. of the politicians in power in America and it responds the to the demands of the market. <laughs> like yeah. I I mean, I mean it's funny because it seems like it's like yeah, the left right, actually right. doesn't want conformity. The left doesn't want people, they don't want independent thinkers and they don't want people to be different because the people who are different are the people that the left tries to tear down. Right, the people who speak out against the dominant narrative. Oh, I don't know. The, I mean, the left continues to act as though they're marginalized, but they're not. You know, the wokes, the wokes have infiltrated the institutions, and they're the ones I think who have power now. Oh, are you meaning to tell me that that we need to have an analysis of the dominant narratives around social justice to see who benefits? <laughs> I mean, like, let's have a look at all. We could have a look. So somebody, some enterprising philosopher, could take a look at 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 the fact that every woke idea winds up at the top of the academy and ask how that happened. Yeah. I mean, how did it come to be the case that the the people that they say have all the power, the white evangelical Christians, are the people that nobody likes and have no social cachet, and the people who say Black Lives Matter get red carpet walks, and then say, well, but the regular black people are, yeah, but the regular black people don't talk about, well, there's a hegemony of whiteness (laughs) and white privilege that needs to be deconstructed. And what we need to do is we need to do an analysis, a Foucaultian analysis of the power relations and the way that the power structures are reinscribed by the discourses. Like that's not happening by regular black people. They don't talk this way. They don't care about that. It's what's happened is that a certain sort of academic world, there's a certain kind of worldview that's, that's, that's taken in, been taken by academics, which has kind of hijacked social justice as a way of making itself dominant over everything. That's what's happened. There's a reason why I think it's something like 56% of black people are against homosexuality, but ask any black person in entertainment or who's on TV what they think, and they all happen to be aligned with an ideology that was developed primarily by white academics. Why? Oh, I happen to remember a certain ideology that said that powerful discourses will select members from the uh, oppressed class in order to launder their identities in and to um, to put – how did Michael Eric Dyson put it? Oh, yes, have whiteness be vi- speaking through black people vi- via ventriloquism. Wow, couldn't we turn that around now and say that that wokeness is ta- is taking certain oppressed people and putting in in their mouths the idea of wealthy, well-to-do, well-fed academics and thus laundering this academic ideology through the mouths of oppressed people? Wokeness through the oppressed class via vitri- via ventriloquism. I'm curious. So I'm going to let you go soon because I've kept you on here for a long time and I know it's getting late for you over there. But I do want to ask you if you think that – so the the wokes have become – this is they've taken over the dominant narrative. They dominate institutions. They currently have political power. They dominate the media. 
Um, they certainly dominate academia to be on board with big pharma and uh, many of the most wealthy corporations in America. Um, do you think that there's going to be some kind of backlash, a successful backlash, I guess I would say? I mean, obviously there is a backlash, but do you think there'll be a successful backlash? And is that backlash going to look kind of binary? Like, do you think that it's going to be a swing towards the right? Or do you think it's sort of too late now that the wokes or the progressives have taken over these these institutions across North America and the West for the most part in any case. It'll crash. We could we could t- we could take the their whole thing and say, look, some people have said have accused when there's a a black conservative they say, well this is whiteness speaking through the black person via ventriloquism. Thomas Sowell isn't really black. Okay, well, we could turn that around and say that these oppressed people aren't. This is woke. Mm-hmm. These are white, well-fed, woke academics who are who are transmitting their ideology through the mouths of oppressed people whom they've brainwashed into believing woke into into buying into this academic ideology. Right? There's no end. It can go in all directions all the time. It's silly. It's it's, and so, I, I think I think it's just it. Because they're so cynical and all of them insist that they have the divine insights of wokeness, they all attack each other constantly on intersectional lines. Like every time someone – like if an able – like the white woman gets successful and so then the black person says, oh, you're pretending black people don't exist. You should forward black voices. So they, oh, ah, oh no. Okay, so they hire a black person. And then a gay person says, well, you're both straight. You should be forwarding LGBT voices. Oh, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Then they all get, well, and then and then the disabled person comes along and says, yeah, but you're all able-bodied. Ah, okay, wait. And, and, and each of the oppressed groups jockeys for social position. And they simply imply to impute bad motives to each other. They're going to rip each other apart eventually. Mm-hmm. It's just they'll form temporary. They'll all form temporary alliances as they reach for power, and then once they get it, they'll all they'll all rip each other apart because they don't have a unified goal. All of them view the same power analysis that they do to you and I, and that they do to general society. They do on each other. Mm-hmm. So it's it's bound to fail. I think it can't hold, and because they have no inherent values that there's nothing to bind them. They can't bind around a set of values because the only thing they value is, is equality and the intersectional hierarchy, which again, they all look at cynically. It just, it just can't work. It's funny because maybe that's the, the revolution that, I mean, they leftists like to talk about revolution and burning it all down and smashing things and whatnot. But it seems like the, what might get smashed and burnt down and, you know, the revolution might come from their their power and control and narrative falling apart just through, I suppose, infighting and attacking one another and trying to destroy everything in sight rather than actually build anything. I mean, I always like to say that reality bats last. And reality is the thing that you run into when your beliefs are fault. This is going to crash on the rocks of reality. Right. I mean, what that's going to look like is an interesting question, but it will crash. Um, I think I should let you go because I've kept you here very late, as I mentioned earlier. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope that we can talk again. I ho- And thank you so much for making 
taking the time. I know that you're very busy, so I really appreciate that. Okay. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you to access special content, early access to episodes, and almost weekly private live streams. Alternatively, you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm via the support button. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and have no major and have no major funders, advertisers, institutional support, grants, or sponsors. It's all me and you, the listener. You can donate any amount you like, from $5 a month to $20 to $100 or more or less. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.